This message will be based upon God's word and more specifically the words of Psalm 21. I'm going to read both Psalm 20 and Psalm 21, but before I do, I want to give an introductory thought as to the relevance of God's word for us today. The Battle of Agincourt was a battle that was won during the 100 years war won by the English over the French. 606 years ago was when this battle was taking place. Almost to the day, October 25th, 1415 in northern France. There were decades of peace in the region, but the English had resumed war in 1415 because of the failure to reach negotiations with the French. So in the ensuing campaign, soldiers were dying in the English army left and right because of disease and therefore their numbers in their troops were dwindling. They were also blocked in terms of the path that they were trying to get to by a very large, strong French army. King Henry V of England led these troops into battle. He was outmatched, outnumbered, and they fought hand-to-hand and then also with archers, longbow archers. Eighty percent of Henry's army were longbow archers. Despite this severe disadvantage, the battle ended with an overwhelming victory for the English. And since then, the United Kingdom, the English, have considered this one of the greatest battles in their history, one of the greatest victories. It crippled the French army and started a new period of English dominance throughout the Hundred Years' War. And so that's why it has become a triumph. In fact, any of you Shakespeare lovers might know that this battle is a large part the background behind Shakespeare's play, Henry V. All right, how was that story? Good? Anybody thinking, loved the history lesson? Thank you, Pastor Phil. Or any of you thinking, all right, get on with the sermon. Who cares? I could care less about what happened 600 years ago in a battle of the English and the French. And I mean this quite seriously. I need some audience participation. Just the show of hands. Any of you feeling like, man, I want to go read more about the Hundred Years' War. Like, wholeheartedly. Nice and high. How many? Look around, friends. The majority of you are not raising your hands. That's my observation. Meaning the majority of you are like, I don't care. Pastor Phil, that was the worst intro I've ever heard in all of your sermons. My guess is the only ones that raised your hands are those people that watch the History Channel for fun or read history books just for the sheer pleasure of it. Not for work, not for school, but for intellectual stimulation. Now, let me ask the question this way. Do you think you would be more interested in this story if you were English? If King Henry V was your king? 
What if you were alive shortly after this took place and the benefits of being an Englishman or woman was in large part because of this amazing victory? Might you cherish this story? Might you want to remember the lives that were lost and sacrificed? And might it mean something very special to you and not just be a who gives a rip? I'm about to read to you Psalms 20 and 21. Last week, John Pay preached for us Psalm 20. And if you remember from last week, and if you weren't here, I'll just briefly summarize that he said that this Psalm, Psalm 20, is a prayer before battle. Guess what Psalm 21 is? The answer to those prayers. That's why we need to read them both, to refresh your memories and to see the twin Psalms that 21 and, tw- 20 and 21 are together. And I, I, I say this intro about the battle in the Hundred Years' War because on the surface, I want to be very plain with you. Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 are about battles and kings and nations that are not 600 years old, but thousands. And on the surface, some of you might be like, well, that's really interesting historically. I find this very intellectually stimulating. And some of you are going to think, who gives a rip? What does this matter? Why in the world are we spending more than five minutes reading and thinking about some battle and some prayers to a God from some people that are thousands of years old and dead? Why should you care? Maybe this will just be one of the most boring lessons that you've ever heard. Or maybe it will be life-transforming, heart-wrenching. Maybe it could change and transform your day, your week, your entire life. Let's read them together. Psalm 20, the prayer before the battle. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. A prayer. A prayer of God's people for who? What did John teach us last week? A prayer for their king. A prayer by God's people for their king before a battle. Now the prayer, either after the battle and they won, that's one interpretation of what I'm about to read to you, or The battle still hasn't even happened yet, but they are so confident in God's ability to save them that they're acting and assuming as if they've already won. Either way, 
Psalm 21 is supposed to be the answer to the prayer. And I want you to pay attention to the key words that are repeated to see how these two psalms are twin psalms together, very intentionally. Notice the things like, May he grant your heart's desire in verse 4. Fulfill all of your plans. May you shout for joy over salvation. Same word that's just going to appear two different times in our Psalm, Psalm 21. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. May the Lord answer all of your petitions and requests. And that we would know that the Lord saves his anointed. And in this context, it would be that the Lord saves his anointed king. See the last verse? O Lord, save the king. So now let's read. Psalm 21, to the choir master, Psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings, you set a crown of fine gold upon his head, he asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence, for the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, Though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Back of your handout, big idea. Right on top, the victory of the king results in praise, praise of or for or by his people. The victory of the king results in praise for and by his people. His people praise, why? Because the king was victorious. Whether he already achieved that victory or they're just so certain that he will either way. His salvation, sometimes translated as victory or deliverance, The thing that was prayed for in Psalm 20 is being confirmed in Psalm 21. Look at the structure of the psalm with me. There's five sections. The first verse and the last verse are the bookends. We call this a chiasm. It's like a mirror. So the first verse and the last verse mirror one another. O Lord, verse 1, in your strength the king rejoices. And in your salvation how greatly He exalts. So the king is singing of God's strength and he is praising God's power. Look at the last verse. Not the king, 
But the people now are exalting the Lord. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We now will sing and praise your power. The people praise because of the strength and the salvation and the victory given to God's king. That's a big idea of the psalm. And it's spelled out in sections 2, 3, and 4. Notice the way section 2 is the blessings given to the king by God contrasted with the judgment and the destroying of God's enemies or the king's enemies because they're one and the same. God's blessing is attached to his anointed. And so we see the anointed king being given all of the things that were asked for. Do you remember back in Psalm 20? It said that may you grant his heart's desire. Look at verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Look, he does give all of the things that he has been asking for. And more specifically, what is the king asking for in verse 4? Life, not death. Victory would mean he doesn't lose in battle. So he's asking for a nice long life and not a life cut short by battles and war and by the enemies with their schemes and their plots. Those schemes and plots will not succeed for God himself will turn their backs and make them run, put to flight. The Hebrew phrase is they turn and run and you see their backs and that's why it's translated for you will put them to flight in verse 12 and you will aim at their faces with your bows and they'll get scared Ah, and they'll run. That's the image poetically, not literally. God in the heavens is a spirit. He literally does not have bows and arrows up in the heavens. It isn't a metaphor for lightning. This is a poem about the blessing that's been given to God's king and the victory that he will have in battle. And so you see that contrast between blessings and affirmation of how the king is blessed contrasted with how the enemies are destroyed. The middle of our psalm is verse 7. It's the third section right in your handout. You should see it indented. The king's confidence in God's love, his hesed love, his Covenant faithfulness is what that word steadfast love means. Covenant loyalty and faithfulness that is the result of overwhelming love. God made covenant promises to David that his kingdom will reign forever and ever. That his throne would be established on this earth and no one would be able to take them out ultimately. And so the king is trusting in the promises of the Lord, in his character of the steadfast love of the Most High, and therefore he shall not be shaken. He shall not be moved, it's translated here in verse 7. All right, that's our psalm. You guys tracking with the structure, the big idea? Hopefully everything I've said is just pointing out what if you would just look at this for a few minutes, it's kind of obvious. And that's why I brought up the story I did in the Hundred Years' War. This is all about last week's psalm and this week's psalm not being about you on the surface. These are prayers for the king of Israel, David. And you're not David. These aren't prayers for you. These prayers aren't about you. They're not about Joe Biden and the president of the United States. They're they're not about our nation, our country. And I just wonder if it would be easy to check out. Be like, who cares? All right, so a bunch of people got together a few thousand years ago and they prayed. 
And they prayed that their king wouldn't lose in battle and their God helped them win a battle. Pastor Phil, I got real stuff going on in my life. Like pain, sorrow, struggles. I'm dealing with depression, anxiety. I don't know what's happening with work. I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep my job. My family's a mess. My own heart, internally, I've got anger problems. I've got a besetting sin and addiction. I want freedom. I want victory. I want these blessings. So I want to give you this idea. The psalm ends in verse 13 with people praising, exalting, singing the power of God and his strength. The victory of the king results people to praise because his victory is their victory. So for them, they're singing in verse 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power as it is on display through our king. Who's your king? And if you have a king and that king has won a victory for you, then kind of like the Englishmen, that war may take on more significance. It might be a little more relevant to you about how you face today and tomorrow. It might even just change and transform the way you think about all of life, if you allow it. I'm of the conviction, as you probably are well aware, any section of God's word is rich with depth, and you can plummet its depths, and you'll never get to the bottom. This king prayed for life, that he wouldn't die. And our psalm says God gave it to him, and that he was victorious, not because of his great might and power, but because of God's strength, and because of what God did. His trust was in the Lord, because of the Hesed covenant faithfulness of God. And this king, therefore, will not be shaken, and his kingdom will not be moved because of this God's covenant-keeping promises. None of that would be true if the king lost in battle. All of these people would not be exulting with great joy if the enemies Some of them weren't found. Do you see that in verse 8? Your hand, God, it will find all of the enemies. Well, what if some of them weren't found? And an ambush came as they were celebrating. Yay, king won the battle. And then, psh, they all get taken out by a selection of enemies that weren't accounted for. What if instead of the king having crowned with glory and honor, he was consumed? Or what if he was swallowed up? by wrath and fury and violence and anger? What if the king was destroyed and every single one of his family, like verse 10 says, of God's enemies? Well, then the people would not exalt. They wouldn't sing with joy. They would weep. They would wail. They would run and hide, like verse 12 says. They would be put to flight. In the same way that his victory is their victory and they can celebrate and rejoice, so would his defeat be their defeat. So I ask you again, do you have a king? And do you have a king whose defeat is your defeat? And whose victory is your victory? Well, friends, I trust many of you understand where this sermon's going. Psalm 21 is not ultimately a prayer for David. David died. 
David's bones are still on this earth. David asked for a long life, but eventually that life ended. Verse 3 says, he asked life of you, you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. David's not living forever and ever. And ultimately, David's kingdom was destroyed. His son Solomon wrecked David's kingdom with an incredible avalanche of sin that came crushing down Mount Zion to the rest of the nation of Israel. Because when the capital of the kingdom falls, the whole nation of Israel is destroyed in a Babylonian exile. And so the people of Israel to this very day have not been able to fully reestablish the political superpower that they once were 3,000 years ago. This little moment of history of this celebration of a battle that was won might be a bit presumptuous, don't you think now? Almost like you celebrated too soon. Unless we should read these as not ultimately about David. Unless Psalm 21 is an answer of not just the prayers for David, the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel, but the great Messiah, the true David, the one we read of just a few minutes ago in Revelation chapter 5, the root of David, the lion and the lamb, who had a defeat that became a victory. What an interesting twist on Psalms 20 and 21 when you read them through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Jesus experienced the strength of the Lord from verse 1 and the salvation and deliverance so that now he exalts because of God's great deliverance except the blessings didn't come first, the judgment did For the King of kings and the Lord of lords who was crowned with glory and honor is the king that became sin for us. Became the enemy of God so that every single enemy would be found out and every sin on this earth would be dealt with. So that God's right hand would surgically remove with his hand. Right hand is the hand you use for a sword. They're right-handed in the Bible. No offense, left-handed people, but that's just the case. Right hand is the hand of power and the hand that one fights with a sword. And God's surgical sword cuts out sin from this earth. And he does it in your heart by his word through his spirit because he cut Christ on the cross. As he pierced him with the nails in his hands and a spear in his side. Jesus was consumed and swallowed up by the wrath of God. So that all of the descendants from the earth, the first Adam, all of the children of man that were birthed from Adam and Eve and have only given woe to this earth, destruction and violence and chaos, they would be destroyed and a new creation and a new humanity with new descendants, new sons and daughters would be birthed but it only could come by the death and the destruction of the first Adam by whom Jesus himself took on flesh to become that Adam figure, the head over all of humanity and die. So that the plans of evil that were against the anointed one 
They're always scheming against God and his anointed one. Psalm 2 said that in the introduction to this whole sermon series. And just like when we read in the Gospels, every single time somebody was trying to get Jesus, it ended up working in Jesus' death slash victory. The betrayal of Judas, isn't that just an excellent illustration of how it seemed like Judas and evil and deception and lies and all the evil plans of wicked men are winning and at the foot of the cross you think now God's own anointed one the perfect sinless son of man has not succeeded and he has been destroyed and swallowed up oh but it was in fact Judas that went to flight ran and experienced the ultimate pain of his choices in his own death and taking his life. The judgment for God's enemies fell on Christ, and through that judgment, it brought the blessings that we read about in verses 2 to 6. Jesus' heart's desire and his prayer was that the Father would forgive all of those trying to kill him. Jesus' heart's desire is that he would be able to give up his life as a sacrifice, and that his body and his blood would be the atoning sacrifice that would once for all pay for all sins. And so he said in the garden, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Did the Father answer his prayer? Did the Father receive his spirit? Did the Father receive him into heaven and then crown him with glory and honor? Did the Father take Jesus' dead body and give it new life so that he would live forever and ever, the length of days never ending for Jesus? And he is he now, name above all names, King of kings, Lord of lords, where every knee will bow and declare that his salvation is great, his splendor and majesty is bestowed on him, and he is the most blessed forever as he lives now interceding in the presence of God in absolute joy. The blessings of the king most and best fit the king Christ, the anointed one, Jesus. So I ask you again, who's your king? Do you have one? If Jesus is your king, then Psalm 21 is wonderfully relevant incredibly helpful reminder of God's faithful covenant-keeping love so that the writer Paul in Corinthians can say every single promise that God made is now yes and amen in Jesus Christ. You know how the middle of the psalm says that the king's confidence is in God's love. When 1 Peter 2.23, Jesus, as he was being reviled, did not revile back. When he suffered, he did not threaten back. Instead, it says, he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Is there any king, human king, that trusted the Lord greater than King Jesus? I don't think there is. And because of that, we who were enemies have been reconciled to God by the death of the Son. And so how much more does Romans 5.10 say? We, if we were enemies, have been reconciled by the death of the Son. We'll be saved by his life, his eternal, everlasting life, his length of days. 
that every single last enemy will be found, as verse 8 says. Your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your hand will not leave one stone unturned, one sin undealt with. There will be no injustices that remain on the earth. Every single one will be found out. God appeared and showed up in the person of Christ. And Christ's death on the cross showed just how serious God was about swallowing up all of God's enemies and consuming them. So because of Jesus, if he is your king, then his victory is your victory. And his defeat is your defeat because his defeat was his victory. And you can become citizens of the kingdom of God and Christ can be your king and master and Lord. Friends, do you want these blessings to be not just for Jesus, but for you? Is there any sense to which reading verses two to six sound like, I want God to hear my prayers. I want rich blessing and I want glory and honor Dignity, value, a sense of purpose and life, and in fact, the ultimate solution to death itself, eternal life forever and ever. If you're going to rejoice like the psalm ends, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We, Embassy Church, sing and praise your power because of what you have done in Jesus Christ. If you're going to rejoice, It is because you trust in the covenant promises that God keeps in his steadfast love and therefore you can be firm and not shaken no matter what happens. So here's my attempt to close out our service and say on the basis of everything that I've said, apply, relevantly apply this word to your life. And I'll do that by illustrating how I've done that for me. And hopefully that will be a lesson for you. First, the blessings of the king are that God would hear his prayer and answer it by giving him a long life, in fact, eternal life. Many of you know I didn't preach last week because our family had the unfortunate news of my mother's passing. And so this word of the Lord from Psalm 21, verse 4, struck me afresh. We prayed this very prayer. Our heart's desire and the request of our lips was life for my mom. It's been incredibly difficult and painful for our family to read over some of the things that my mom has said in her final days. And one of them that we heard this last week was a message she sent to my dad. And it was just basically summarizing verse 4, the desire for long life celebrating the 50th wedding anniversary of my mom and dad, dancing together at our grandchildren's weddings. And she went on and on. And what makes this so hard is death. So I read this this week. I prepare this message for you. And I ask you, does God only give that desire and that prayer To this king, King David, or King Jesus, or is the king's victory over death and his resurrection 
And his ascension and his forever living in a human body point to all of us, including me as I grieve my mother's death. Hope, life, eternal life. As painful and as sad and as sorrowful as these days have been, I tell you, friends, we have as a family, and I do as your pastor, hope. Psalm 21 is relevant for grieving children. I suggest that you learn from this lesson. If Jesus Christ is your king, then his victory is your victory, and his victory is over the greatest enemy of all, death itself. I think that makes all the difference in the world. That could change everything you think about for the rest of today, this week, and the rest of your life. Have you remembered that death is coming for all of us? Watching it happen right in front of your face reminds you of your mortality. Gathering for funerals and mourning the loss of a loved one smacks you in your face about all of your ambitions and all of your assets and everything that you were hoping for and reminds you that it could all be cut short in a moment, in an instant. Or my mom's case, an internal bleeding that would not stop. With 24 hours, she was gone. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you. These words in Psalm 20 are not in 20 and 21, just simply some poetic meditation about a history lesson from the history books. They are the mighty words of God to breathe life and hope and to cut out like the surgeon does all sin in your heart that fails to believe and trust, as verse 7 says, the goodness of our God to keep his faithfulness, his promises faithfully. I, I plead that you would repent of your sin and allow the surgeon to do his work and find every last little enemy of unbelief in your heart as you stare the victory of Jesus in the face, even in the worst moments of your life. Lesson two, Psalm 20 is teaching me that God's victory is God's victory. It's just so poetically repetitive. You have given him you are the one that's not withholding from him. For you are the one who approaches and meets him and fills him with the rich blessings. You're the one that's crowning him. You gave him the length of days in his life. His salvation is your salvation. You're the one that's bestowing him the splendor and the majesty. You're the one that is blessing him forever. And you are the one that makes him glad because it's your strength that the king is rejoicing in, not his own strength. It's your salvation that he's exalting in, not his salvation that he has achieved. In what ways have you, like John asked us last week, put your trust in chariots or in horses instead of the name of the Lord that is explained, the name, the reputation, that's what it says. We trust in the name of the Lord, meaning his reputation. What is his reputation in Psalm 21, verse seven? Steadfast love, covenant-keeping faithfulness and loyalty to his promises. Do not put your trust in your power, in your intellect, in your bank account, in your parenting skills, in your government, in our military, in your doctors, in your health insurance. We could go on, right? 
Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 are twin psalms, so I think it's helpful for you to be reminded again, in what ways are we putting our trust and our hope in things of this world? Instead of acknowledging that all victories that we have in this life are victories that come by the grace of God. Your victory at work, your promotion, children that aren't rebelling, peace in your home, wealth in your life, any prosperity in any sense, however you'd want to describe it, is a gift that has come by the grace of God. And I just want you to think as to whether or not when things get ripped out from underneath of you like a rug and you fall flat on your face and you feel like God's abandoned you in those moments, if it's not revealing that your trust has not been in the Lord. And that in your own life, you would realize that too often we stress and we worry instead of having peace at the end of the day and say, God, we hand over all these things in our life to you and we put our trust in your ability to care for them better than we could. My wife and I, every night before we go to bed, we pray together. I'm sure there's nights where we don't, but generally speaking, we do every night. And one of the main goals as we pray together is to review the day and just thank God for everything he did that day. And what I see that has done is not just, well, that's what a pastor should do. He should pray with his wife and he should thank God for things. I think what it does is it creates an awareness that every good thing that happened wasn't because of me. And it reminds me of my sinful, proud heart that wants to take credit and steal glory from the God who gave me whatever good gift there was. Was today a good sermon? Well, it would only be by the grace of God. Was today a great day of family time? We'll see. But if it is, it's by God's grace, and we want to give him glory and praise for his strength. This psalm is so God-centered, it should convict you. And I pray that it would rightly do so. How often are you reminded of how many things are really out of your control and how many of you need to be reminded today from God's word you're not in control. You're not in control of your body even though you've done all that dieting and you've done all that exercising and you've tried very, very hard to make sure you have a long life. And then you hear somebody that's as fit as can be, has a brain aneurysm and dies. This is the world we live in. You are not in control of so many things. Third and final lesson. I pray that each of us will learn that God has answered the prayer of length of life. That was lesson one. Lesson two, I pray that we would all learn that we need to trust in the name of the Lord, the character of God. Third and finally, Psalm 21 is relevant because it tells you that God's victory includes defeating his enemies, swallowing them up in his wrath, consuming him in the fire, destroying their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Those words are not like pulling punches. They're intense, aren't they? And again, I do think part of that is because it's poetry, but the other part of it is because the reality of what's being talked about. If you're trying to win a battle, and you don't find all of the enemies, well, then you still have a battle to fight. 
And if there are still forces that would come against you, including, let's say, well, you killed off the parents, but then they have children and they're going to be angry and bitter and upset and vengeful, so they're going to come after the king when they grow up and are strong enough. And so this sort of verse in verse 10 is trying to tell you the enemy is completely, completely defeated in every way you could imagine. They have turned and run and they will not come back. There is no winning against God and his plans. And so I ask first, some of you, you may be here today, and if Jesus is not your king, then that means you are his enemy. So the scriptures say, Romans 5.10, as I read to you, we were enemies of God. We were dead in transgressions and sin, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says. We were children of wrath. So if we are not submitting to King Jesus, then we are black and white, as plain as I can say it, we are an enemy of God. And then many of us have made the right choice to make Christ our King through repenting of our sin and putting our hope and trust in Jesus, as verse 7 says, putting our hope not in our ability to do good works. The victory and the salvation is God's. God saves Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish. I can't get myself out of this fish. Salvation and deliverance is going to be of the Lord. Your salvation is all of the Lord. It's all of grace. Not something that you can boast about, but rather a gift that you just receive. And if you're a Christian, it's because you have received a gift of salvation through your faith and trust in Jesus. But yet there's still some battles that's still need to be fought. Enemies in our heart. Unbelief. And the sword of Christ, as the book of Revelation says, that's coming not out of his right hand, but out of his mouth. His word needs to do more surgery in your heart. And I pray that you would invite that surgery. In the same way that we were able to say goodbye to my mom in October and not June, was, I think, in large part because of the medicine, the surgery, metaphorically speaking, that was done on her body to sustain her life. And I pray that you would see that as a picture of life-saving pain. The way John chapter 15 talks about pruning branches. Some of you might have dead branches of unbelief hanging on to the tree of your body, and they need to be pruned and cutting off dead branches will hurt. I like that dead branch. And you need to let it go. And you need to invite in God's surgery into your life. Where his sword will find out every last one of your enemies. The enemies of unbelief and the lack of trust. And here's, here's really the bottom line, I think, for many of us. You do not confess sin when you're afraid of what the result will be. And you think it'll be shame, not glory. You think it'll be condemnation instead of blessing. Cursing and judgment, being outcast rather than drawn in. Embassy Church, very practically, we will invite fighting sin with one another if we take hope in the gospel. And we encourage each other that when we confess sin, we don't act like, oh, you did that? You think that way? 
but realize how common and normal it is for us suffering sinners to struggle with unbelief. And therefore, we should invite each other into each other's hearts and lives to be the agent of cutting out all of the enemies that exist within our church and with our heart and with our society. And I I think there's still more work that God needs to do in all of us because God's victory includes a kind of dying and a defeat. It's how Jesus achieved his victories by being swallowed up and consumed. And like the fire that refines and cuts out all the dross, may God's word and his church purify, sanctify, and make you holy. Do not be afraid of what the result would be. You, you might have a, a member of this church or a Christian friend that respond very poorly to a confession of sin. It happens, but by and large, I pray and ask that this church, and generally speaking, I think God's been gracious to us, makes this a safe place for you to just share every last detail of what's going on in your heart inappropriately defined discipleship relationships, not just up from front, people to understand, but in close relationship and community. We can allow God to do work on the deepest crevices of our soul because we know that it is for life to save us. And you can take confidence like the king does in his steadfast love. So a history lesson, sure but one that is rooted in the very work that God is doing to save you. I hope and pray that this would be relevant for all of you in whatever way that might find you today. Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we come now in the name of your Son, Jesus, our King, our Lord, and we pray that you would grant our heart's desire for life. Life now, true, abundant, rich life that invites your work to destroy all of the powers of darkness and unbelief in our heart and our society. We want to pray and ask that you would bring your spirit to bear upon us and that we would not run away from your desires to save us, but that we would lean into them and cling closely and that you would save us by your grace day by day as we open your word. And as Hebrews, the author says, like a a sword piercing to the very bone and marrow of our soul. Dividing things that can't even be divided. Your word can get into the tightest places. And we ask that you would by your Holy Spirit and for your glory and praise. We want to pray for anyone here that does not know that Jesus Christ is literally a human king that walked this earth and defeated the powers of death and darkness. I pray that they would understand that there is a king that lives and reigns and we should bow down to him and obey him. Father, would you grant faith and trust and repentance to all who are here today? In Jesus' name, amen.